You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. So when I was uh, 16 years old, uh, and in fact, the day I turned 16 and I got my driver's license, my parents kicked me out on the road to go find myself a job, right? And looking for a job when I was 16 was not the same as looking for a job today. Like kids, these kids today don't know how good they have it. If they have a pulse, they can get a job for $30 an hour, right? For me, I had to go and apply to like 30, 40 different places, and nobody wanted to hire scrawny 16-year-old little Brad. And I was shocked by this reality. And I remember like putting in my applications and having interviews and having a picture as a 16-year-old of what like an ideal job would look like. Right? Like, I wanted to be like work in a, a nicer restaurant or, you know, work at the mall or be a barista, whatever it was. Like, I had a picture in my mind of what I wanted to do, but the only place that would actually hire me was Red Hot Inn. Anybody know Red Hot Inn up in Grand Rapids? It's no longer there. Moment of silence for them. <laughs> I was hired in as a busboy and dishwasher. And, and I'll just say this, on my, for $5.75 an hour, mind you, on my list of like things that I wanted to do for my job as a 16-year-old, busboy and dishwasher was not at the top of that list. And so I remember like going after I got the job, I was at youth group one night, sitting in my small group and was telling you know, everybody, hey, I got a job. And my youth leader was like, oh, really, where? I was like, Red Hot Inn. And he's like, oh, what are you going to be doing there? I'm going to be just a busboy and a dishwasher. And he looked at me in the eyes, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, you are not just a busboy and a dishwasher. You are a hydration, sanitation, servant <laughs> leader. And I thought to myself, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. But it changed how I walked into that job every single day. Because he was right. I wasn't just a dishwasher or a busboy. I was a coworker to a girl named Grace, who was a blue-haired gay atheist. And here is little Christian schoolboy Brad. And I'll never forget some of the conversations Grace and I had in the drive-thru of that restaurant about the irony of her name Grace and her parents' divorce and her questions. I had some of the most robust, growth-filled, challenging conversations about faith in that drive through window with Grace. I think about customers like Rick, who would sit in the corner booth every single night with his cup of coffee and cigarette in hand. You could smoke in restaurants back then. And every time I would push my busboy cart by Rick, I would get an invitation to have a seat with him and have a smoke with him. And I'd be like, dude, I'm 16. He's like, what's stopping you? Have a seat, have a smoke with me, right? And so I would, I would sit down with Rick. And Rick had baggage when it came to the church. And 
faith and, and God, and we just we wrestled through conversations together in that corner booth at Red Hot Inn. Think about my manager, Laura. That's not her real name, um, but she was slightly mean and abusive. She'd smack your butt if you walked too slow by her, <laughs> right? But, but she had lost her husband two years earlier. And I just think about the people in that job, that that my youth leader was right, as stupid and as cheesy as that was, I was not just a dishwasher or a busboy. I was a hydration, sanitation servant leader. You see, the years that I spent in that job taught me something really, really important that has changed the way that I pastor. It's changed the way that I parent. It changed, it's changed my marriage. And the lesson that I learned in that first job was this. That if serving others is beneath you, then greatness is beyond you. If serving others is beneath you, then greatness is beyond you. And this is true in every single avenue and arena of our lives. That if serving your spouse in your marriage is beneath you, then a great marriage is always going to be beyond you. That in your your job, if serving your coworkers around you is beneath you, then any type of fulfillment in that job is going to be beyond you. Same thing is true in the church. If, if serving others around you in the church is beneath you, then a good church experience is always going to be beyond you. Now, I think when, when, I, when you hear that statement, there's nothing particularly earth-shattering about that. There's nothing particularly new about that. I think most of us know in our heads that that's true, that if serving others is beneath you, then greatness is beyond you. But I, I wonder if for some of us, having that head knowledge move to our hearts and actually become a way of life and a posture towards the world, there's a disconnect. And, I, and the reason why that is is because every message that we hear in our world is telling us the opposite thing right now. Right? Cut off the people in your life who are no longer serving you. A church that is no longer feeding you, just, just move on. Just go find something new and better. A marriage that is no longer serving you or not meeting your needs, just move on. Right? Only take a job that offers the right benefits to you. But, but a fundamental truth about life with God and what we're going to discover today is that if serving is beneath you, then greatness is truly beyond you. And this posture has the potential to change how we experience fulfillment in every area of our lives. It has the power to change our heart posture towards the people around us. And what I want to do today is we're going to be extremely practical today. So for those of you who like stuff you can easily, not easily, but put into practice at least, this is for you today. And so we've been looking over the last several weeks at our main man named Joseph. And Joseph, when we pick up with his story today, he is in a prison. And the reason he's in this prison is because he was falsely accused by his boss Potiphar's wife of trying to rape her when he didn't want anything sexually to do with her. He was a man of integrity, so he's falsely accused and he finds himself in this prison. So at this point in the story, Joseph was a favored son of his father. His brothers didn't like that, so they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt now, 
For 11 years, he serves as a servant in Potiphar's house only to be falsely accused by his wife. And now he finds himself in a pit, in a prison, a second pit, if you will. And as we pick up with Joseph's story in this prison, what we're going to see is that prison Joe is very different from dreamer Joe in week one. Prison Joe is a very different person from dreamer Joe who only, who only had self-serving dreams where his brothers gathered around him to worship him. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. It's in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 40, verses 5 through 8. Joseph is in charge of a couple other prisoners, a cupbearer and a baker of the Pharaoh. And one night they come to him. And this is what happens. One night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So let's pause here for a moment in the story. Joseph, in this moment, is an authority in the prison. He's got these two guys that he's looking after in this moment. And most likely, these two guys were in prison because of some assassination attempt or coup attempt against the Pharaoh, most likely having to do with trying to poison him, because if you think about their jobs... One was in charge of Pharaoh's cup, the other in charge of Pharaoh's bread, so he consumed what they gave him. And so they find themselves here, essentially, in this place of death row, in this prison. And here's what I find so striking about Joseph in this prison setting. This is just so counterintuitive to the way that we think about things. That in every single one of these stories of Joseph, his position tends to deteriorate. Right? Story one, he's favored son. Story two, he's a servant. Story three, he finds himself in the pit of prison. Psalm 105 describes Joseph with an iron around his neck, shackles around his ankles. Like the guy's position keeps deteriorating. He keeps going to a lower and lower position. But here's what's so striking. As Joseph's position deteriorates, his spiritual authority and the anointing on his life tends to increase. Right? So as he goes from favored son to servant to prisoner, what we see is that he goes from a dreamer who dreams dreams that elevate himself where he is the center of the story to now in this place here in the prison where Joseph is described as noticing that his fellow inmates are troubled. He sees his fellow inmates. He he moves towards them. That when they need someone with the gift of interpretation, Joseph doesn't seek to take credit for his gift. What he says is, don't you realize dream interpretation belongs to God? In other words, my gifts are not my own. I exist to employ them for the service of others. This, guys, is a very, very different Joseph from the Joseph we met 11 years ago in his father's house. See, Joseph's attitude, even in prison, was never, well, I'm just stuck here in this prison, and I'm angry. 
I'm angry at God. I'm angry at everyone around me. I'm angry at my brothers. I'm angry at my dad. I'm angry at everyone. Don't bother me with your dreams. Don't you realize I have dreams of my own? No, Joseph has eyes for the people around him. If I were to summarize kind of what's so striking to me about Joseph's story, I would say it like this. That Joseph uses the gifts God gave him in the place where God has him for the people God brings around him. Gifts, place, people. I can't tell you how many times God has used this perspective to humble me in my life. Because these often, and what I've noticed even being a pastor, is that these three things, gifts, place, and people, are often the three most common excuses we actually give not to be used by God. Right? Let's just take the first one here, gifts. God, I don't know what my gifts are. God, I don't feel qualified for this thing that you're calling me to. God, I don't have the same giftings as other people. Or, God, my gifts exist to elevate me so I can take another step in my career, so I can put myself in the center of this dream and everyone else around me. You know what the best way to discover how God has gifted you is? To start serving other people. To see the people around you. To begin serving them. And watch yourself come alive. Or watch yourself really hate what you're doing and realize you, <laughs> that's not your gifting. Right? That also happens too. But the best way to actually discover our gifts is to start putting some things into practice. When I was first asked to step in as an interim youth pastor, I was given every single responsibility for the youth group except one. Teaching. I didn't do the teaching. And it was actually through the process of becoming a youth pastor and putting myself out there and saying like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll try teaching in front of the youth group and it terrifies me and I don't want to do it, where I actually discovered a deep passion and love and anointing for teaching in my life. Because one of the best ways that we discover the gifts that God has given us is through just trying things, just putting them into practice, putting ourselves out there for the service of other people. In, in March here at the church, and this is just kind of a side note, but we really, really want to help you discover how God has uniquely gifted and wired you. And so we're starting for three weeks on Sunday nights in March, something called CORE. That's actually going to be helping you discover your divine design, how God has gifted you, and we're going to have assessments and conversation and just this beautiful community where we discover together how God has uniquely wired and gifted us and what he actually wants us to do about it. So we exist as a church to help you discover how God has gifted and wired you for the service of other people. So that's number one. That's the number one excuse we use. Another one we use is place. How many of us, and I'm not looking for a show of hands here, like this is just more uh, rhetorical, but how many of us would say, I'm not in an ideal place right now in life? I'm not in an ideal job situation. I'm not in an ideal season in my life right now. I'm not in an ideal marriage. Right? We, we think about these questions here, this idea of place, and so many of us, we use place as an excuse not to be used by God right now. And what, what I want to say to you is don't wait for God to change your place before you start being used by him where you are now. Like, don't miss what God has now as you're waiting for what's next, the next job the next season, the next promotion. Let's be open to 
what God has for us now in this season, in this place. And then the last one is people. (laughs) We use the people around us sometimes as an excuse not to be used by God. Like, I don't like my coworkers very much. My family is beyond hope. This person in my life is a lost cause, and so I write them off as someone who is beyond hope, and I actually use that as an excuse not to be used by God in their lives. My, uh, my best friend, just this past December, took a job as a pastor in Fremont. And uh, he and his family had lived in Colorado the last several years, and they felt God nudging them and calling them to Michigan, and I was like, Yes, like so excited that God was calling my best friend back to Michigan. And if you're not familiar, Fremont is approximately an hour and 12 minutes and 43 seconds from here. Um, I'm not excited at all that he's back. And uh, I I swear we had probably 100 conversations this past year about him wrestling with whether or not God was calling him to this community, this church in Fremont. He was struggling with kind of where God had him in Colorado and was really wrestling over what God had next for him. And over the course of these conversations, I mean, we talked in person, we talked on the phone, we talked over Skype and all of that stuff. And I would say 75% of our conversations kind of centered around one thing. And in fact, I I have this conversation with every single staff member that we hire here. It's the same process that I went through, the same thought that I circled around four years ago when I was processing coming to Wayland. And the single thought that we talked about probably more than 75% of the time was this. Don't accept the position if you can't love the people. Don't accept the position if you can't love the people. You want to know the single best indicator or one of the single best indicators of whether you're not you'll love the people in the next season of life that you're in? It's how well you're loving the people around you right now. It's how much you're willing to serve the people around you right now. And what I saw happen in my friend as we had these conversations is a deep love for the people of Fremont emerge in him. I said, hey, like Fremont cannot be just a stepping stone to something that you might consider better Like, don't accept the position if you can't love the people where they are, as they are. Because this is how God works, and this is how God moves, that yes, he does move us into new seasons from time to time, but so many of us are missing the opportunities around us right now that God has placed in our path, because our eyes are always on what the next season, the next promotion, the next thing is. And yet sometimes, sometimes God places people in our lives in a similar position to us as a unique ministry that we may have to that person in the season. Other times God uses the season that we're in to cultivate the gifts inside of us that would not be cultivated if we get the promotion before we're ready or get to the next season before we're ready. Joseph uses the gifts God gives him in the place where God has him for the people around him because he understands that if serving others is beneath you, then greatness is beyond you. This is true for all of us. It doesn't matter what your work is. Some of us are 
farmers, some of us are teachers, factory workers, stay-at-home parents, whether you're unemployed, working fast food, whether you're a barista, recently retired, or have retirement on the horizon, there is one of three orientations that we all take towards our work. And the first orientation is that we treat our work as kind of cash, right? It's just a paycheck. It's a job. It's a means to an end, right? I'm just a dishwasher. I'm just a busboy. I'm not a dishwasher because I'm particularly passionate about dishwashing. I don't know anybody who's particularly passionate about dishwashing. It's just a means to put gas in my car or food on my table. The only reason I work is for the cash, for the paycheck. It's just a job to me. That's number one. That's the first orientation towards work. The second orientation that a lot of us take towards work is career. The my goal is to climb the ladder in search of status and wealth. And when career is kind of the central motivation for your work, you find yourselves placing so much identity in your success and failure in your career, in your job, that you experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows because your identity is tied to what you do. I will just be honest and vulnerable here. This is one of the biggest temptations of a pastor. I have to regularly remind myself that my role as a pastor is not my identity, first and foremost. It's my assignment. It's what I'm called to do. And so career is, is the second orientation. And the problem with both of these orientations towards our work is that just like Dreamer Joseph in week one, we place ourselves in the center of that dream. And everyone else surrounds us. Everyone else exists to serve our needs. But there is a third orientation towards work. The third orientation towards work is this. Calling. Calling is what happens when you use the gifts God has given you in the place where God has you for the people God has around you. And I will tell you this, when you view your life as calling, you will never be out of work. You may be in transition between jobs, but you'll never be out of work. I, I think about people who are retiring right now and who are, who are kind of even as I've sat with just different people in our church who are retiring, there's this, this weird kind of heart tension that exists in this space because you're, you're kind of grieving what was lost as you leave your job, but you're looking forward to what's ahead. And I have just had so many incredible conversations with people in our church who have this mindset that even though my job may be behind me, even though I may not be employed formally anymore, my calling does not end ever. And I see retired people who have some of their best days of influence and gifting and calling still ahead of them. Amen. And I want you to know, if you're in that season, this church needs what you have to offer. And I would say the same thing to students, students who haven't started their formal career yet, that even in this sense, you may not know what you want to do. I remember when I was a high school student just waiting so much for the next thing and the next thing. I just wanted high school to be done so I could move on and like, get an education and pursue a career, and I just wanted that done. And I would say the same thing to you, that like, your calling, don't dismiss this season you're in right now. Because even if you haven't started your formal career yet, your calling is for the people and the place that God has you in right now. Don't dismiss that. So this is what's so cool about Joseph. 
That if Joseph's dream for his life, right, him in the center with all of his brothers standing around him was just fulfilled in a straight line and there were no pivots or detours or unexpected things that came up along the way, Joseph would not have the character to be able to handle what God had for him. So God cultivates this in Joseph in the prison season of his life. And so going back to the text here, going back to the story, Joseph has these two guys that come to him, and they both have dreams. And, and the cupbearer says, hey, my dream sounds like this, that I had a vision of, of a vine, and there were three branches that started to grow from this vine, and on those branches were some grapes that grew. And I went over with the Pharaoh's cup, and I squeezed the grapes into the cup, and I handed it to Pharaoh. And he's like, what does this mean for my life? And Joseph uses his gift for the sake of this, baker, or this uh, butler, and he says this. This is its interpretation in verse 12 here. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, this is Joseph's one request in this interaction. He says this, only remember me. Remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into this pit. So you have this cupbearer who's being restored, he's being vindicated to his former position. And then you have the second prisoner, this this baker who is right there with them, and he overhears this interpretation, and he thinks to himself, like, if that's the cupbearer's destiny, I cannot wait to hear what my destiny is for the dream that I have. And so he starts telling Joseph his dream, and I imagine he's just like waiting with expectation. So he's like, okay, this is my dream. There were three baskets and on my head, and all of a sudden some birds came and started eating the breads and the cakes out of the basket. And he's like, okay, what does this mean for my life? And this is what Joseph says in verse 18. This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, just like he said to the cupbearer, from you. (laughs) I love, this is like sarcasm to the, and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. That's a real nice verse right there. Somebody's life verse right there probably. So, So here's what happens in this moment. You have one criminal who is vindicated, the cupbearer. He's returned to his position and you have another criminal who is condemned. And as you would guess, Joseph's interpretations both come true for both of these guys. In three days' time, the cupbearer is restored and the the baker is condemned. Now, what does the cupbearer do as soon as he gets to Pharaoh's palace? Is he is so astonished by Joseph that he runs as fast as he can to the Pharaoh and says, this guy, this guy who was in prison with me told me everything that would happen, not just about me, but also about the baker. He told me the timeline. He told me to exact detail what would happen. And you got to meet this guy because it all came true. No, that's not what happened. It's astonishing to me that's not what happened, but that's not what happened. What the author of the story does is he actually introduces a plot twist into this story. And this is what happens as soon as the cupbearer is restored in verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. For two years, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. 
So what's the plot twist? The plot twist is that the author of this story doesn't want you to ultimately see yourself as Joseph. Joseph is a nice kind of study. It's a character study. It's some nice principles for living. But that's not the ultimate point of the story. What the author wants you to see yourself as, who the author wants you to see yourself as, is the cupbearer who's been set free by a true and better Joseph named Jesus. You see, Jesus, just like Joseph, was condemned as an innocent man, put into a prison, tried, and Joseph, or Jesus even one step further, is hung on a tree. In his greatest moment of humiliation and condemnation, right? Just as Joseph, his status keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Philippians 2 describes us that he took on the status of a servant. Just like Joseph, Jesus was favored son. And then he took on the position of a slave by serving everyone around him. And then he took on the position of a prisoner, a criminal, hanging on a cross. And just like Joseph, Jesus had a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. One to be vindicated and one to be condemned. And even while hanging on a cross, Jesus offered salvation to the criminal who would receive it. More than anyone else, Jesus knew what it meant to use the gifts the Father gave him in the place where he had him on a cross for the people around him. See, if serving others is beneath you, then greatness is beyond you. That is the example of Jesus' life. And the reason it's so important for us to see ourselves as the cupbearer is because Jesus, who is the true and better Joseph, became an innocent prisoner, right? We talked about this last month, the captive liberator, became an innocent prisoner and set us free. And what happens so quickly in our lives is that as soon as we get into that new place or that new position or that new area that God has for us, we can easily, like the cupbearer, forget that it's because of God's grace and his mercy that he has us there. We can convince ourselves that the gifts that we have, the abilities and the talents that we have, were just placed in us for our own benefit, right? Just like Joseph, we're the center of the dream, the center of the story, but where the true character transformation comes in is when we begin to realize, we begin to be a cupbearer that remembers who was in prison with us, who got into our prison and set us free, that we actually remove ourselves from the center of our own dreams and say, actually... Jesus is the center of this dream. And everything I am, every ability that I have, every position that I find myself in, every person around me, I am called to point to Jesus as the center of this dream. That's how God redeems the dream in our life. That we don't forget who Jesus is what he has done, and it flavors and colors every part of our lives. This concept finds itself over and over in the New Testament. I could probably point to a hundred different places in the New Testament. For example, Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
right? In other words, in view of God's mercy, don't be the cupbearer. Don't forget what Christ has done for you on the cross. Don't forget the freedom Christ has won for you on the cross. And then you know what Paul says it means to live in view of God's mercy? To humbly serve other people with authentic love. I mean, that's it. Like he says, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the rest of Romans 12, he goes into practically humbly serve each other with authentic love, humbly give up yourself, humbly serve others. That's what it means to live with a view of God's mercy. In Galatians, Paul says this. He says, your freedom is not for you. It is for the purpose of humbly serving other people. In other words, when we remember who Jesus is and the freedom that he has won for us from the power of the flesh, from the power of sin, the freedom he won on the cross, when we remember it, it changes the way we move through this world. Changes the way we approach our jobs. It changes the way we approach our marriages. It changes the way we approach our church. It changes the eyes with which we see the world. So as we kind of wrap up here, I want to just ask three questions to you. Three really practical questions. The first one is this. Where does God have me right now? Where does God have me right now? Maybe for you it's in a job situation. Maybe for you it's in a family situation. Like what is the place that God has for you right now that maybe you wouldn't call the most ideal? Maybe you're in a place right now where you love the place God has you in right now. But where does God have you right now? Number two, who has God put around you? Who has God put around me? I want you to think even in this moment here of some names, some faces. Maybe for you, a name of someone you don't particularly like all that much is coming to your mind. I had several people come after first service and say that. Maybe it's someone that you're just indifferent to, that you regularly overlook. Maybe for you, when you think of this question, it's somebody you have animosity towards or just someone you don't really care about all that much. And then the last one is this. What is God calling you to do about it? For some of us, that is serving them in a way that none of the other coworkers are willing to. For others of us, that's actually sharing the gospel with them. Talk about stepping out of our comfort zone and discovering our gifts. For others, that's inviting them out for coffee or a conversation. Like, what is God calling you to do about the place that he has you in and the people that he has around you? As the band makes their way up, I want to just close with a story here. So, one of my closest friends here in the church is a guy named Gabe Rookus. And many of you know Gabe Rookus. He's actually in Guatemala with our team right now. And Gabe is a guy who did two tours in Iraq. He has served our country faithfully, has tons of awesome stories to tell about it. But when Gabe got home, he ended up becoming a tow truck driver. And this was not Gabe's vision for his life, right? He, he kind of settled in this job. He was a tow truck driver. And there was one shift one night where his coworker, Wes, who was a good work friend of his, couldn't make the shift. He couldn't get there. He needed somebody else. And so he called up Gabe and asked him to take his shift. And Gabe said, sure, I'll, I'll take your shift for you. And so Gabe's out there, and he's on the side of the highway, and he pulls up behind an SUV ready to help with a flat tire. 
And the SUV's kind of hatch is open, and the, the people are standing in between the tow truck and the SUV, which if you know anything about highway safety, you know you don't stand in that place. It's very dangerous. So Gabe is trying to you know, get them out of there and like move them to a safer place to stand. And as he's doing that, he just kind of military sense kicks in, like spidey sense almost, like something's coming. And all of a sudden, he sees this car coming massively fast on the road, and he pushes the people out of the way, and he jumps into the trunk of the SUV, and the car just smashes it. I mean, just obliterates it. And Gabe's legs are just crushed. And in a flurry of movement, he's, he's rushed to the hospital where they actually have to amputate his leg. He loses his leg in this moment. And uh, this was not just kind of a you know, one and done thing. He had a month of inpatient recovery over at Mary Freerbed with therapy and all of the, the different things. And during this one month period at Mary Freebed, he had been talking to his coworker Wes. And Wes had so much guilt over the fact that Gabe took his shift. I mean, just like crushing guilt, like on the floor in depression and desperation and just drinking his sorrows away, like kind of depression and guilt over the situation. And there was one night where Gabe was on the phone with Wes and Wes was just in a particularly dark place and Gabe said, just find a way to get yourself down here to the hospital. So Wes had someone drive him to the hospital and this was after visiting hours. And so the nurses wouldn't let Wes come up to visit Gabe in his room. So if you know Gabe, he just starts ripping. Just, he's going outside to meet up with Wes. And he meets his friend in this really dark place. And he takes the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And Gabe would say this. It was not like an instantaneous shift or an instantaneous change. But Wes eventually got sober and he put his faith and his trust in the person of Jesus and has a beautiful family today and is living a life of fulfillment and would credit Gabe for the seed that was planted that night because Gabe understood what it meant to use the gifts God gave him in the way less than ideal place God had him for the person God had placed in his life. And I'll tell you this, you can do the same. That if, if I could put myself in the role of that horny youth leader for just a moment as we close, I would tell Gabe this, you are not a handicapped amputee laying useless in a hospital bed. No, my brother, you are a powerhouse pirate with a pivotal purpose. And to you, I would say you are not just a stay-at-home mom. You are not just a retail worker. You are not just a school worker. You're not just an electrician. You're not just a school bus driver. You're not just anything. You are a sanctified, saved, set-apart servant of God. And so take that reality into the place that God has you for the people God has placed around you and use your gifts. Live with a view of God's mercy to put Christ in the center of the dream and not yourself. So how I'd like to close us this morning as we respond in worship is I just want to invite everyone in this room to stand. And as you stand, what I want to do is I want to pray a prayer of commissioning over you. 
And if, you're here, if you were here with us last week, commissioning is just a way in which you are sent out into the world that you find yourself in. It's a way of saying with the authority of Christ and his church, go into your context and live this out. So if you don't mind, if you're comfortable with it, just extend your hands in a posture of receiving, and I'd love to pray this over you today. God, we thank you that you show us more than anyone else what an example of servanthood is. That if serving wasn't beneath you, it cannot be beneath us. And so God, my prayer for every single person in this room is that they would take that authority into their workplaces, into their family situations, into their schools, into the place that you have them right now. And that they would have the courage and the boldness to use the unique giftings and the unique talents and the unique abilities and resources that you have given them. Not to put themselves in the center of the story, but to put you in the center of the story. And God, my prayer is that because of even what's planted this morning, that there would be salvations that come about in our workplaces salvations in our schools and our families, that people's names would literally be written in the Lamb's Book of Life because we understand what it means to live this out. And so, Christ, with the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray a blessing over my brothers and sisters to go to the places where you have them and to live on mission for the people that you have placed in their lives. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. And everyone said...